pray together before we're seated. Oh, Father, thank you for these great truths we've been singing, these great reminders of the great forgiveness we have in Christ, of how Christ conquered death, of the foundational truths of the church, that you are a sovereign God and you are in control. You are our mighty fortress today. Father, as we take our Bibles and as we look into your word today, would you encourage us and strengthen us? Father, we're distressed and disturbed over the events of this past week, the darkness that is creeping over our land. and We want to stand as a, as a bright light in the darkness. Give us the right heart attitude. Give us a, a confidence and a courage in the resurrection of Christ and in the authority of your word. And help us to be uh, your representatives well in this earth, on this earth, in this dark age. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to hearing, help our hearts to be tender and our minds to be clear, help us to be willing to surrender to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you are new to us this morning, not only do we welcome you, but Let me just comment as I begin that it is our practice to preach through the books of the Bible. We call that expository preaching. We just let the Bible speak. That's what we want to receive. And as you can see by your bulletin order, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Well, not only did we change the order of service for the hymns, but it became evident to me this Friday after the Supreme Court decision went public Uh, I just had a growing sense of needing to address this in some way. Uh, As I watched and listened to the responses and even the celebrating of sin that went on, it became clear to me uh, as we entered into the weekend that um, I really needed to address it here from the pulpit today. In some ways, I, I really didn't want to. And I wanted to move on with Matthew, and I wanted to talk about the master of the universe. Don't you love that? And how he could make the blind to see and the lame to walk. And so this morning, um, on my heart is a word for our church. In many ways, it's a responsive word. We do not always respond to the world around us. Um, We know that we live in a a sin-cursed world, and we know that we live in a world of fallen men and women who make bad decisions and bad choices, and we know that in some ways not that much really changed this Friday morning. On the other hand, um, a lot changed, I think. And I do feel convicted that, um, for one, that the church needs to respond in some official statement to this decision that was made Friday morning. And I'm confident that across our land, uh, pastors are addressing this from the pulpits. Um, I feel strongly that our young people need to hear a response, especially our teenagers and on up. We live in a, a confusing world and a world that is pressing in upon us, trying to push us into its mold, trying to distort reality and We live in a world that uh, now calls evil good and good evil. And I think that it is a day for a clear word from the pulpit. I also recognize from talking to individuals that there's just a sense of disturbance. uh, Something, uh, a darkness that comes over your thinking and a, a sadness. And I think that that is uh, perhaps... Uh, Along with a deep concern, a sadness describes how I stand before you today. I do want to qualify uh, my remarks today um, by saying that I do not want to speak in anger at all. I know that I'm capable of doing that. Um, And I don't want to come across angry at all. I don't feel angry really in my heart. There is a level of righteous indignation and a frustration Um, I also don't want to be overly political. I think I can do that. I'm capable of doing that. 
I think there is a time and a place to talk about the political ramifications of what's going on in our country. I don't think it's right here and now from this pulpit. What I do want to do is I want to help us maintain a perspective or gain a perspective that we would think biblically and respond appropriately to these kinds of events. It occurs to me that... um, I don't know everyone in our audience today, and it is possible there are those here today who would radically disagree with me and our position here at Fellowship Bible Church on these matters. And I want to say to you, I'm so glad that you're here, and I do not want to offend you. Now I want to warn you that the Word of God is capable of offense. And sometimes the truth can feel offensive. And um, if the word of God offends you, I make no apology. If I offend you, I'm sorry ahead of time for that. I'm capable of doing that. And so I also think that this is not really necessarily a Bible message that I'm going to deliver. It is somewhat of an address. It is, uh, in my mind, a pastoral response. And so I bring to you a word that's on my heart couched in the teaching of God's Word, designed to help us gain perspective and clarity as to how to think as God's people. What I've done to break down my thoughts and to organize our thinking this morning, because it is a vast subject and can go many different directions and it can digress in a hurry, is I want to ask three questions. And the first question that I want to ask continues to build a foundation for our word today. And it is this question. So why the concern? Question number one. Why such concern? What is it about this decision that bothers us? Some of us might have a sense that this just bothers me and I'm not even sure that I can articulate all of the reasons why it bothers me, but there's just something wrong with what's happening. Others are on the outside looking in at biblical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, and you wonder, what's the big deal with you people? Why are you so concerned about this? And that's question number one today in our message. What's the concern I'll answer that with four or five points. The first of which is, I am concerned about this topic enough to address it this week and this decision of the Supreme Court that came out um, signifying that all states are to legalize um, homosexual same-sex marriage. I think that part of what bothers me is how much celebration has gone on. And that's response number one to the question, why such concern? Number one, I'm concerned because of the open, blatant, shameless celebration of sin in our country. Righteous people ought to be bothered when the general public celebrates sin. You should not be comfortable with that. In some ways, very little really changed Friday. Some 30-plus states had already legalized same-sex marriage. In 2011, the Justice Department, the highest-ranking sheriff's department in our country, blatantly stated that they would not enforce laws that were on the books banning uh, homosexual acts, engagements, and same-sex marriage. And it's interesting to me how quickly that has shifted in our culture where something that was absolutely illegal and had a penalty of the law behind it now becomes celebrated under the law. There seems, even since Friday, if you've been watching with any awareness, it seems that there has been a dam break of celebration of sin. It's very saddening. Grieving to see our house, the White House, awash in the rainbow colors of the homosexual movement as our president celebrates this decision as a great day for Americans. People dancing in the streets, shouting and carousing and just celebrating debauchery, celebrating sin. 
I've already referenced the internet nearly in meltdown mode over people just praising this decision and slandering those who would stand against it in any way. What is our cause for concern? Number one, I am concerned about this because of the open, blatant, shameless celebration of sin. Secondly, uh, I think we have cause for concern, and it's closely related to the celebration of this sin, is the circus-like popularization of this sin. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, would you please? And, and let's reference a list of sins that the Apostle Paul describes as very serious. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We recognize that we live in a sinful society. We recognize that people do sin. We recognize that people are fallen and, and that they're far from God. And we recognize that our country and our culture is saturated with sins of all kinds. But it, it raises the question to me, why has this particular sin become so popular? Of all the sins and the lists of God's word and all of the things that God condemns, it concerns me that this sin has become popular beyond all other sins, it seems. Now the passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Let's begin with verse 9 and read verses 9 and 10 and 11. Paul, in addressing sin in the church at Corinth, is actually going to uh, list a variety of unrighteous behaviors. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this great verse about God's grace and mercy, verse 11. And Paul reminds them, and such were some of you. And it's the same in the church today, isn't it? God has been merciful and he's opened our eyes to sin and we've been to the cross and we're forgiven in Christ and washed by the blood of Christ. And those are the old days and the old ways. And now we walk in newness of life, praise God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Amen. And so those who are critical of Bible-believing Christians will point to a list such as this, and they will say to us, so why are you so upset? What's the big deal? What is your cause for concern? Why are you always troubled about this particular sin above all other sins? Part of the answer for that is because that sin seems to have been chosen among other sins to become popularized, and it concerns me. Let me let... John Piper answered this question. Uh, John Piper is a pastor from Minnesota and a prolific writer and speaker for evangelical Christians. He references 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 that we've just read. And he's responding to this popularization of this particular sin. I'm going to read several paragraphs. Will you listen closely? And we will let John, Spike, John Piper speak to this point. It's not the only sin mentioned, but it is different from all the rest. At least right now it is. At this moment in history, contrary to the other sins listed here, 1 Corinthians 6, homosexuality is celebrated by our larger society with a pioneering excitement. It's seen as a good thing, as the new hallmark of progress. To be sure, the masses increasingly make no bones about sin in general. Innumerable people are idolaters, not to mention those who are sexually immoral or who commit adultery or who steal and are greedy and get wasted and revile neighbors and swindle others. It happens all the time. And each of these unrepentant sins are the same in the sense of God's judgment. They all deserve his wrath. And we're constantly reminded that such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6.11 that we just read. That's us in the church. Piper goes on to say, But as far as I know, none of those sins is applauded so aggressively by whole groups of people who advocate for their norm normalcy. Sexual immorality is no longer the tip of the spear for the progressive push. 
Adultery is still frowned upon by many. Accusations of greed will still smear a candidate's political campaign. Thievery is still not openly embraced, and there are no official initiatives saying it's okay to go take things that don't belong to you. There's no such thing as a drunk agenda yet. Most aren't proud to choose a beverage over stability, and there aren't any petitions that the government should abolish the driving restrictions of inebriated individuals. Reviling others still isn't seen as the best way to win friends and influence people. Swindling, especially on a corporate level, usually gets someone thrown in jail. In fact, the infrastructure of the American economy depends upon, in some measure, our shared disdain for conniving scammers. Perhaps, excepting fornication, these sins are still seen in a pretty negative light. But not homosexual practice. Not by those who are now speaking loudest and holding positions of prominence. According to the emerging consensus, homosexuality is different. We see that, don't we? We have the celebration of sin. We have the popularization of this sin. We have, as our concern, a third point, and that is the marginalization and the, the redefining of marriage itself. The marginalization and redefining of marriage. You do know, don't you, that ever since God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, that marriage has been defined by God himself as sacred. A physical bond beyond, between one man and one woman. And because of this, one afternoon, in a closed-door room somewhere, five black-robed judges just thought that they could redefine marriage and marginalize all of this that has been in existence since the Garden of Eden. I don't mean to mock them, but I was thinking about what they must have sounded like to God. like, can you imagine the squeaky wail that must have been in God's ears? Who do they think they are? An embarrassment to our country. An embarrassment to call yourself an, a, a, a student of the law and of the Constitution to come up with such a conclusion. It is absolutely outrageous. And irresponsible on their part. I like what Franklin Graham wrote in his blog. He wrote, The Supreme Court of the United States has ruled today that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. With all due respect to the court, it did not define marriage and therefore it is not entitled to redefine it. Long before our government came into existence, marriage was created by the one who created man and woman, Almighty God. And his decisions are not subject to review or revision by any man-made court. God is clear about the definition of marriage in his holy word. Quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 I pray God will spare America from his judgment, though by our actions as a nation we give him less and less reason to do so. Why such concern? the marginalization and the redefining of marriage itself. Interesting, isn't it, that about a half a century ago, the attack was on Genesis chapter 1, that we have a creator God and that we are created with design and with purpose and with function and form and created man is and women are in the image of God. And by undermining Genesis chapter 1, we now live in a time when we can disregard Genesis chapter 2. Is it, any, is it any surprise anywhere to anyone that those who would disregard Genesis chapter 1 would then disregard Genesis chapter 2 and the def definition of marriage and therefore also redefine Genesis chapter 3, that is, the sinful fall of man? It's a reminder to us of the importance of a creation ministry here at our church. It's a reminder of us to be instilling at a young age in our boys and girls the apologetic of biblical truth 
that we are created by a loving, holy God, a God of design. Fourthly, our concern is based upon the naturalization of that which is unnatural. Will you turn to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 is perhaps the clearest passage in all of God's Word as to the the downgrade and the progression of what happens in the lives of men and women who disregard God, who replace God with their their own idols, who worship the creation rather than the Creator, who decide that they know more than God and who do not humble their hearts in the presence of a holy God. We'll begin in Romans chapter 1, begin with verse 18 and read through um, verse 29. As we read, I want you to think about what we're arguing here. We are, we are demonstrating our concern. Why such concern? I'm concerned because of the movement to naturalize that which is so unnatural. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, look what they do, they suppress the truth. To suppress the truth, you have to recognize the truth, and they do, and they willingly turn against it, redefine it, suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. What is Paul just saying to these Roman believers? So you're living in a culture of people in Rome of this first century who disregard God, who worship themselves, who worship their own pleasures, who worship their own idols of their own making. They have no concern of God when they bump into the truth. They disregard the truth. They say it's not the truth. But they're without excuse because you can't ignore the truth. And the way you can't ignore the truth is that we live in a world of design and awesome creativity that drives one to understand that since we live in such a creation, there absolutely has to be a creator. You cannot examine our universe at its mega points or its micro points and not be stunned with the absolute lack of explanation for how could this be? As simple of a matter as how can a black and white cow eat green grass and have white milk come out? How does that happen? How is it that the compass works? How is it that robins know to come north in the spring and they never get confused? And I'm supposed to think about that. And I'm supposed to recognize you can't make this stuff up. And it is unbelievably ridiculous to come to the postulate and conclusion and then to call it a fact. It all happened out of nothing. It's just unbelievable that people with little letters on the front of their name and little letters on the back of their name that represent the best years of their life given to reading big books with small print can come to the conclusion that it just happened. Well, you wouldn't let me tell you that about this pulpit that Perry Jackman made. It didn't just happen. It was carefully, skillfully crafted in his basement out of a design from the Creator's hands. That's what Paul's talking about. To come to the conclusion that there is no Creator means you're living with your eyes closed, buried in the sand, your head buried in the sand. And you're without excuse. And they do it, he goes on to explain, they do it because believing themselves to be wise, notice what he's going to say, they become fools. That's the only explanation. For his invisible attributes, verse 20 again, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Somebody's grandma told them about God, but they didn't honor him. And they gave no thanks to him. They became ungrateful, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. 
sin overwhelmed them and they didn't even know it. Claiming to be wise, verse 22, and underline this in your Bible, they became fools. That's the only explanation for almost everything we see nowadays. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, now notice it's a result of rejecting God. God gave them up, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God let them go. You never want God to let you go. You don't want to go the direction of your sinful heart. It is, it is destructive. And it leads to death. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They said, the things that are a lie, they say are true, and the things that are true, they say, they say they're a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, Paul says, amen. Verse 26, and so here, for this reason, now this is to our point of the naturalization of that which is unnatural. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You can read Leviticus chapter 18 about that. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, uncontrary, natural, unnatural, contrary to nature. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, here it is again, gave them up to a debased mind. They can't even think straight because God gave them over to the baseness of their own thinking. To do what ought not to be done. It's not natural. You don't do this. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. We'll stop there. I have a very crude illustration to this point. I have a steel chainsaw that I really like. It's an 036 Pro. I cut a lot of wood because I have an outdoor stove. It's a good day when my saw's running well and I have a sharp chain and I've got some trees in my yard that need to go and so I get my saw out and I fire it up and I cut wood and it's just good and this is God smiling on me. My saw's running well and I've got wood for the stove and my family is warm and this is the way it's supposed to be. That's a good thing. And that's exactly what the steel manufacturer meant for that saw to do. Another day, on my day off, I look over at my neighbor and I think, those trees would burn very well in my stove. And I cross this fence and I get my saw out and I saw down his trees and I'm loading him in the back of my truck. And the neighbor comes home and he jumps out and says, hey, what are you doing? You cut my trees. My granddad bought Planados. Yeah, the great trees, they burn in my stove really well. What do I have? The steel manufacturer meant for my saw to cut trees. It was the unlawful but proper use of intent. Another day, my neighbor comes home and I'm across the street and I fire up my chainsaw and I'm over there cutting through his sidewalk and blacktop and cutting his truck in half. So what are you doing? You're out of your ever-loving mind. Why? Because it is the unnatural, unintended, undesigned Usage never intended for that. That's what I'm concerned about our young people growing up in a culture where they call that which is unnatural natural, that which is abnormal normal. I recognize that this is a huge issue and that many of our families here are touched with this topic, that people can struggle with sin at, at all levels for all kinds of reasons. It does not negate the reality of the fact that God designed a man and a woman for a purpose and for marriage. You can redefine it and call it whatever you want. But when you move out of that context, especially into the world of that which is same sex, it is no longer the normal usage. It's unnatural.
Let's wrap up this part with a final point. We're still answering question number one, by the way. Why such concern? Why this topic? Why, are we, why does it bother us? The open, blatant, shameless celebration of sin. The circus-like popularization of this sin. The marginalization of the sacredness and redefining of marriage. The naturalization of that which is unnatural. Finally, and I think it needs to be stated this morning, the step towards the criminalization of any who disagree. Why do I care about this subject? Because this decision legitimizes those who would categorize those who call homosexuality a sin as haters. We're not haters at Fellowship Bible Church. Not a hater when I teach God's Word. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, addressed it like this in his blog. One of the most dangerous dimensions of this decision is evident in what can only be described as the majority's vilification of those who hold to a traditional view of marriage as exclusively the union of a man and a woman. Justice Samuel Alito stated, Alito stated bluntly that the decision, quote, will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy, close quote. According to the argument offered by the majority, that is of the court, any opposition to same-sex marriage is rooted in moral animus against homosexuals. In offering this argument, the majority slanders any defender of traditional marriage and openly rejects and vilifies those who, on the grounds of theological conviction, cannot affirm same-sex marriage. I received an email from one of our elders then Friday evening, and I quote, PV, I told my wife today after this decision that I believe it is quite possible that as a church leader, I will be thrown into jail at some point for refusing to compromise my doctrinal beliefs with civil laws. It's coming, he said, dot, 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 and soon, close quote. I will be very surprised if we have uh, much more than six months go by before we lose our tax-exempt status. I know the law will need to be tested and that will ball it up in courts for a while, but I fully expect in the, the present administration uh, for uh, parachurch and church organizations who take a biblical stand on marriage to lose, to start with, their tax-exempt status. You know, big deal. Big deal. How do we respond biblically to this? Uh, in concluding on this point of criminalization, let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and we have a model here in Peter and John who were arrested for preaching the gospel. And uh, we'll not be able to break down this whole passage. It is one maybe to put a slip of paper in and read later. It reads well. Its story begins in Acts chapter 4. The story begins in Acts chapter 4 where they're preaching the gospel and, uh, and it moves through and they're finally uh, put in jail. We'll let our eyes go to Acts chapter 5 verse 17 and go right to the point. The high priest... Okay, the religious leaders of the day who completely rejected Christ, who completely rejected the message of the apostles, and also had significant political clout, were the high priests. They rose up, and all who were with him, this high priest and his staff, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, Acts 5.17, now 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Then it goes on and an angel came and let him out. Listen, if you find out one day that your pastor or your elders are arrested and put in prison for preaching God's word, you can be fairly comfortable with that because we're in good company with guys like Peter and John. Down to verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set before the council, set them before the council, verse 27, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. <laughs> you can't teach this stuff. That's hate speech. 
Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here it is, the official statement for us. We must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's a great verse, by the way, young people. Here the very witnesses of Christ are writing this down. They refuse to fold under the scrutiny and the prosecution of wicked people. Because they know it's true. They were there. They saw it happen. Verse 33. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Isn't that an interesting response? They're just preaching Christ. You can't do this. Go to jail. We'll kill you. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. It's really not a complicated matter. Well, there's the answers to the first question. Why such concern? Question number two, quickly, and I'll just click these off, is what is it that we're really witnessing right now? What is it that we are observing in our culture? What's happening before our very eyes? How are we to understand what we see and what we hear today as Bible-believing Christians? Let me just click off some points without much um, explanation Well, first of all, I think politically it's somewhat of a no-brainer that they have found a subject that can vilify and marginalize a significant portion of the opposition party. And so politically speaking, there's strong-arming going on. Biblical morality is being marginalized and demonized so that if anybody who is righteous speaks up, At any level, saying that same-sex marriage is a sin, you will essentially be unelectable. Secondly, nationally, what do we see? Read in Jeremiah chapter 2 and following. What we're seeing, like in Israel of old, is the highest offices of our land celebrating sin, proclaiming, And giving proclamation to the affirmation of sin and what we saw Friday and what we are witnessing Friday, nationally speaking, uh, is clearly nothing other than the corporate national act of defiance in the face of a holy God. That's what it is. Do not miss what's happening. A nation, a nation has spit in the eye of a holy God. Prophetically, what's happening? Oh, prophetically, it's... Really an interesting study. Let me just reference a couple, couple of verses. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 is one passage that we read. And there it says, Paul warned Timothy as a leader in the church. He said, in the last days, things will get worse and worse. Prophetically, what we're seeing is we're seeing God's clock unwind. We're seeing, I believe, the falling into place of the circumstances of the last days before the return of Christ. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Oh, we must live ready. Have you been to the cross? Lay down your backpack full of sin. Acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ alone could pay the price for your sin and keep the law for you and that he's got the deal of all deals that only by his grace and through you just believing in faith that he did that for you. He'll give you his credit card of unlimited righteousness and he'll take all of your bankruptcy and bad debt of sin and he'll wipe it away as far as the east is from the west. And when the holy God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your filthy baggage of sin. It's all been taken care of at the, at the cross. That's a beautiful story. That's the greatest need of all people everywhere. Be ready for the return of Christ. Jesus himself said that as it was in the days of Noah. Remember, there was such base sin. And it was a society that completely rejected God and did everything that was estranged from God's ways. Morally, what do we see happening? Morally, we see the throwing off of restraint 
the moral compass of the United States is spinning out of control, and it has been for a long time. We're in the same moral swamp as Israel was in the book of Judges after the generations of Joshua died off. And in chapter 2, of verse 11 of the book of Judges, it says, And a generation who did not know the Lord, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 2 of Judges says, They abandoned the Lord. The very last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25 says, And everyone just did that which was right in their own eyes. It's where we are morally, self-guided, letting the flesh rule, men and women without restraint. Theologically, we have happening in front of us living illustrations of a runaway sinful heart. A heart that is unrestrained, a heart that is blackened with sin. Listen, dogs bark, sinners sin. It's what you do. Don't be surprised. And there's no limits to sin. So theologically, we have simply man rejecting God and demonstrating what a darkened, sinful heart will do in the presence of a holy God. Our final and third question is, so then, how do we react to this? What do we do? How do we react? We've asked this morning, why do we care? We've laid out some thoughts on that. We've tried to bring some perspective as to what are we witnessing politically, nationally, prophetically, morally, and theologically. So how do we react? How does the church at large and how does this church, Fellowship Bible Church, respond? Well, first of all, number one, we do not realign or shift our biblical convictions to become more comfortable or relevant to a hostile culture. Let me read that again as somewhat of an official statement. We do not realign or shift our biblical convictions to become more comfortable or relevant to a hostile culture. Secondly, we do not redefine marriage. It was God's idea. He planned and designed it. And no man can usurp God's plan. Some months ago, Fellowship Bible Church elder board became concerned about limited um, language in our official documents here protecting our theological positions based upon God's word concerning marriage. I thought that it would be appropriate for me to read a document then that was forged by our elders and officially signed by the chairman of the elder board and myself uh, in December of 2014, a little less than a year ago. It's entitled, Position Statement on Human Sexuality, Fellowship Bible Church, presented by Fellowship Bible Church Elders, December 2014. It begins uh, with the quote of Genesis 2, 18 and 24 through 25, uh, where God stated that it was not good for a man to be alone and that he created Eve and uh, brought, him, brought her together with her husband. Here's what we wrote. In view of the rapid degradation of societal norms regarding human sexuality and the associated impact on the evangelical community, it has become necessary for the leadership of Fellowship Bible Church to issue an unequivocal and scriptural position statement regarding these issues. The first two chapters of Genesis reveal God's design and plan for his creation. The elders of FBC affirm that God created humanity with only two sexual distinctions, male and female, as recorded at birth, both bearing the image of God. His intent for marriage, as expressed in Genesis 2 and affirmed elsewhere in Scripture, is exclusively between one man and one woman in a monogamous context intended for lifelong sexual intimacy as a blessing from God. Consequently, all other forms of sexual expression, such as same-sex, romantic, or sexual relationships, transgender manifestations, e.g. surgical sex change or cross-dressing, cohabitation, adultery, bestiality, incest, pornography, and any other form of sexual deviancy are considered to be sinful, misaligned with God's purposes, and to misrepresent the nature of God himself. As such, these are wrong in God's eyes under any circumstances. In light of our commitment to scriptural truth, the pastors of Fellowship Bible Church will not perform same-gender weddings or any other unbiblical weddings or ceremonies at the church or at any other location. 
Furthermore, no one will be permitted to use any FBC facilities for such activities or functions. While we hold that all deviant sexual activities and expressions, as noted in this paper, are sinful and unacceptable to a holy God, we recognize that grace through faith in our risen Savior can cleanse and reconcile the repentant sinner to our Heavenly Father. And then we reference 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, signed by our chairman and by our senior pastor. I thought you should hear that this morning. How do we react? We do not realign or shift our biblical convictions. We do not redefine marriage in any way, shape, or form. Let me say clearly, we do not fear or hate homosexuals. We are not haters of anyone here. We are trying to follow hard after Jesus Christ who commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we are lovers of righteousness here as well, according to the word of God. And therefore, we hate sin at all levels. It was interesting to me that Les Lofquist, the general director of our IFCA, our independent Bible churches, it's where Janet and I are heading out this week in Cincinnati for our summer convention, sent this morning early um, a document that has already been forged in previous days for the IFCA And a paragraph there caught my eye, and I thought it was good. We are not haters. And I thought this captured it well. Listen, another paragraph. The Bible also informs us how we are to respond to people who struggle with sin of any kind, including homosexuality. We are to possess and demonstrate God's love for sinners, a love that seeks to deliver them from their sin through the provision of Jesus Christ. We renounce common reactions such as sarcasm and mockery and ridicule and disrespect to those engaged in sin. However, the gospel is not, nor has it ever been, about affirming humanity in whatever expression it chooses. It is rather about the powerful grace of God towards sinners that delivers us from sin by cleansing us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is impossible, therefore, to demonstrate the love of God and at the same time endorse, legitimize, or affirm conduct or behavior that brings his condemnation on its participants. I thought that was a well-written paragraph. Fourthly, how do we react? We stay on mission as a church. Preach Christ to a needy world. Fifthly, What we do, we honor and uphold biblical marriage. We show the world by our own marriages that God's plan is irreplaceable and unimprovable. In the church, we need to work hard to have strong marriages, to fight against divorce, cohabitation, adultery, sexual immorality, the very sins that work to undermine marriage itself. Sixthly, we do engage in the democratic process as long as we can and as wisely as we can. We live in a republic. We live in a, in a country yet that is designed to be led from the populace up. It's designed to be led from the bottom up. It is supposed to be by the people for the people. Now that system seems to be breaking down rapidly Some of you have keen interest in this level of involvement. Get involved. It's not wrong. This is America. You're allowed to do that. Righteous people ought to speak up. Finally, we do not live in fear or despair. Let me just read to you the few words from Psalm 46. Let me encourage you to read Psalm 46 this week for your own encouragement. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. You can read on in the chapter. He ultimately says in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Listen. God has a plan. God is in control. This is man's day, not God's day today yet. There is a day coming. We have a book, and we've sneaked a peek at the last couple chapters, and we know how it ends. 
And God wins. And in the meantime, he has a purpose for his church. It is not meant to be a radical, revolutionary church that kills people or cuts their heads off or throws them off of high buildings. It is meant to be known for its love, its commitment to truth, its grace, its justice, and its message of Christ. Let's demonstrate well what it means to be light in a dark world. How do we react? Well, there's some things we don't do. We do not realign or shift our convictions. We do not redefine marriage. We do not fear or hate sinners. We do stay on mission as a church. We preach Christ. We do honor and uphold biblical marriage. We do engage in the democratic process. And finally, we do not live in fear or despair in general. Let's bow in prayer. Uh, Father, would you please encourage our hearts, strengthen us in our biblical convictions, help us to know how to live like Christ. Would you help us to be salt and light for society? Show us how to live. We need help. We recognize what a confusing world in which we're living today. I pray for our boys and girls and our young people growing up today that you would give them a, a moral clarity and, and a distinct ability to see through the fog of sin and deception that's going on in our world. Father, would you help us to be gracious and yet firmly committed to your word? Would you take away our fears? And Father, whatever the future holds, and we don't know what the future holds, would you just help us to be righteous men and women, led by your Spirit, representing well our Commander Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We do pray for righteous leaders to rise up. We pray for revival to start in your church and in our church and that we would disdain sin at all levels and be committed to holiness and that the revival in your church across the country and around the world would sweep through communities, that we would see men and women turning to righteousness. It's our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.